what do we do when we find ourselves up against the many leadership challenges that exist within our chosen careers? We all have goals and achievements that we would like to accomplish. Unfortunately, these desires don't come equipped with insight or awareness on how to bring these accomplishments to light. In essence, this is why the Dream Octane Niche Finder Framework was formed. Our founder, Clifton C. Manning, spent the first 17 of his 20-year career in healthcare working with physicians and healthcare leaders to achieve patient-centric goals while possessing only an associate's degree in applied science. At times, these challenges were daunting and he felt unqualified to achieve the success he wanted. However, he focused on becoming intentional in reading every leadership book that he could find, as well as attending frequent seminars in areas where he saw opportunities to improve. Over time, as he applied insights gained from these various sources, he was able to successfully and efficiently cross the hurdles he found himself up against. Eventually, varying degrees of success within his sphere of leadership influence became more evident. The Niche Finder podcast is intended to bring similar insight to you, the listener, from those who have achieved some level of noteworthy success in their chosen career. Our hope is that the challenges they have overcome in the past will provide insight for your current leadership struggles and unlock the dream of achieving success in your own career. We believe that if innovative change is an engine, your unique dreams and abilities could be its fuel. And now I present to you the host of the Niche Finder podcast, Clifton C. Manning. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Niche Finder podcast, where today we're going to be interviewing my little sister in the psychology arena. And we're very excited to have Dr. Natasha Manning Gibbs on the program today. And she's just going to tell us some of her story. The whole goal of the Niche Finder framework is really to look at the path of experts. They're going to be doing a retrospective, but the goal of them doing a retrospective is to point back to something at the start of their journey that may connect to your current situation. It is hoped that it will provide you with some sense of support and also accelerate your path towards excellence. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to Dr. Natasha Manning Gibbs. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hello. Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have somewhat of a bias and I've known my sister for so long, obviously all of her life because I'm a bigger brother. I definitely want to get you to get a taste of her journey. Maybe not going back all the way to childhood, but some things that she has touched on. And we're going to be asking some of the same questions as if you've been listening to some of our prior programs. You know that we ask all of our guests the same questions, but obviously the responses are all different because everybody has a different journey for getting to their path of success. So what we're going to do is just hit her with some of these questions and just see how she came about to being Dr. Natasha Manning Gibbs and how her journey starts. So tell me a little bit about this your backstory, Tosh, and Dr. Gibbs. (laughs) And how exactly, why would someone be interested, have a vested interest Mm -hmm. in your journey? Well, my journey is a bit unique in the sense that I wasn't a kid that used to say to adults, when adults ask them the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wasn't the type of kid to just have an answer automatically. You know, like, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be X, Y, and Z. I was never that kid. And I always reflect back on that because when it came to me picking my major in college, 
I remember those moments as a kid being fascinated by, you know, my peers that would have a really confident response to adults. I remember I had a friend, she's like, yes, I'm going to be a vet. And she said it very confidently. And so my journey really started with my own personal experience. My journey into the field of psychology never came from me being in high school and saying confidently, oh, I want to be a psychologist. Quite honestly, I didn't even know what the field really consisted of. I knew that there were people that had this shingle and had this term sometimes placed on them of being shrinks. But I really didn't know what the field was all about until I got into college. And so my journey to being a psychologist, again, was based on my personal experience. I was a teenage mom, always share with folks that on my senior year, from my first day, I was supposed to wake up and go to school like all my friends were going into school that day. But instead, I went into labor that morning. And so I had my son um, that afternoon. And that was really a pivotal moment in my life where not only did I have to adjust to being a student, but I also had to adjust to being a parent, I should say. I had to adjust to being a parent and still being a student, taking on both of those responsibilities. And so that experience in my life was transformative. It taught me so many things. But one of the things that I think really stayed with me throughout my pregnancy and definitely the first couple of years of having my son was just that sort of judgment that I got from folks. I remember I applied to several different colleges and universities when some of the teachers, I remember there was a guidance counselor once they found out that I was pregnant. They just thought that I should have to higher education that went out the door. And so it was a very difficult time in my life to kind of deal with that sort of judgment because I went from being a great student, somebody that was applauded for not only just doing well academically, but also in school, I was known as the singer. So, you know, my principal kind of became this pseudo manager. So whenever we had school events, she would, you know, say, Natasha, can you sing? And so I went from in some ways being on this pedestal in high school, again, academically, and as far as having a talent, you know, you can kind of feel people's energy. They start to look at you differently. And so that situation definitely was very impactful because going in even to what I do right now, I work in a prison. So two things that I do, I have a private practice in the community where I specialize in treating depression, anxiety, and I do a lot of stress and anger management work with my clients. But my full time during the day is I run a mental health unit in a juvenile facility, a juvenile male facility. It's called the Jersey Training School for Boys. So it's a juvenile facility for young men. And in that prison, it's very interesting that I feel like it's truly my calling because I'm working with a group of young men who were in some ways treated the way I was as a teenage mom. I know that the experience that they have in their lives is different, but it's similar in the sense that they're a teenager that's made a mistake, quote unquote, and it's led to them having to deal with a consequence. And so I think my journey really starts there with me being a teenage mom and really helping me to empathize with people based on my personal experience of feeling judged and wanting people in many ways to empathize with me when I was that age or going through that difficulty. So that's a bit of my story just to start off with. 
Mm, well, what I hear you saying is, is that much of what you went through in your own, I guess, judgment or people you feeling the sense that people were judging you actually sensitized you to the field that you find yourself in now, right? It's like you, you're dealing with people who in the penile system, especially young adults, juveniles, still forming, still trying to understand who they are, let alone what path that they find themselves on disenfranchised and you know that's one of i guess one of the heaviest judgments that one could carry when you have been convicted you look at that every day you wake up and you see the bars and you see the concrete box that you're in and you're always constantly reminded so i hear you saying that you know although you didn't find yourself in the penal system it still sound like an internal struggle that you were dealing with now did you find that that internal struggle at the start of your journey helped to shape you for where you currently are It definitely helps me to be empathetic, sympathetic towards people that are counted out by society, essentially, you know, having in some ways been categorized in that way. It makes it in some ways easy for me to deal with people who are put in that same category. Like, again, teenage moms are counted out. Like, I wasn't even expected to graduate from high school. Better yet, go on to higher education. When you look at the statistics, over, I'd say, the last 20, 30 years, it's pretty grim for teenage moms. So for me to, in some ways, overcome that challenge, not only does it help me to empathize and sympathize, but it helps me to encourage people, encourage the men that I work with. And oftentimes I sound like a broken record sometimes working with them. My catchphrase is, this is one chapter in your life. And it's up to you to, you know, bend a different corner or go down a different path. It doesn't have to define the rest of your life. I think that my struggle with feeling judged at that one point in time in my life is really definitely impacts the work that I do currently with these young men. And I don't think I'm able to be more compassionate with them, but also um, able to really encourage them in a way that I probably wouldn't have if I wasn't working from that place of knowing how it feels to be judged at such a young age. And people, I think, can sense that, too. I think you can tell when somebody's giving you just book knowledge versus somebody who's speaking directly from the heart. And I think that resonates with people even if they don't necessarily have your level of education, I think people all have that discernment. They have a sense that, you know, this person is genuine. Yes. Right. And so I think that that is that's lacking in in many of our systems. You may have somebody with a degree, but they may not have the dedication. They may not have the heart like what you have. But so I understand the motivation. But at the start of your journey, what was your mission? What did you want to accomplish at the very beginning? At the very beginning. So when I went into college or do you mean like when I officially got into my career? Let's start with your beginning going into college. What did you want to accomplish? Because you said you didn't know what exactly you wanted to go into. So what was your mission going into college? What brought you to psychology? Having a conversation with myself, trying to figure out what I thought would be a good fit for me as far as my personality. I think that in many ways it was easy for me throughout not just high school, but throughout my childhood to really empathize and sympathize and kind of, I think I have this compassionate side to me, but that is attributed to our mother, right? Sometimes you don't realize how much your parents affect you, obviously, until you're an adult. And so I think that mom's giving nature, going out into the community and handing out pamphlets and praying for people, you realize how much 
that impacted me until I said to myself, oh, I want to help people. I'll never forget as a kid, we were going, doing some Saturday errands and there was this homeless woman that was on this firm bench in the town that we ran our errands in. And I'll never forget that I used to just look at her as this woman that was homeless, obviously. She was disheveled, unkempt. And I just never forget when mom approached her for the first time. I think I had a great role model in the sense to model for me that treat everybody with respect, never look down on anyone. And so that really, I didn't realize again, how much it impacted me until I got into college and really had to, for practical reasons, make a decision. I didn't want to go try to pursue my degree for five, six years. I had grants that were run out by that time. So it was a very, I felt this pressure at one point in time. I think the end of my fall semester of freshman year, I said, I got to make this decision. So I was taking these random classes and, you know, just accumulating credits. And so going back to mom, I just started to reflect on how much I admired that, that, you know, she can go up to anybody, even somebody that grew up on our childhood street. There was a young man, I don't know if you remember him, but he went from being, you know, just a regular kid to somebody that was involved in the streets. And I could always remember mom, like if he's walking down the street, you know, just not treating him as if he's less than or like, oh, that young man is in the streets or he's a thug or anything like that. She always treated him with kindness, you know, took time to talk to him. And so those are specific life of childhood situations that really helped me to make a decision to go into a field that would give me the opportunity to help people in that way. So yeah, it's really about me reflecting on what comes sort of second nature to me. Again, being a compassionate person, wanting to help others, and then trying to couple that with an actual career or with a major, I should say. And then in some ways the universe took over because once I made that decision, then I had an academic advisor say to me, hey, you know, based on what you're sharing with me, what you have an interest in, you might want to take a psychology class or a course. And so I took it and I just, you know, fell in love after that. And then the second psychology class I took was with who this woman that eventually became my mentor. She was the first black female psychologist that I ever met. And so she really took a liking to me and I really admired her. We had a great relationship and she just really guided me from there. So it's not like a serendipitous situation, but I definitely think that there was the spiritual world kind of in many ways took over at one point in time in my journey. It was like, okay, yeah, I know what I want to do. I know what I have an interest in, but in some ways I released that to the universe and then everything else sort of swooped in. The people that I needed, the information that I needed really just kind of showed up. Things just started lining up for you. So I understand and I hear where you're coming from, where you're saying that this is what drove you into psychology. But while you were in psychology, you didn't just stay there. Right? You went on and said, not only do I want to do what I love, which is I'm helping people in the penile system, but you also decided to do the entrepreneurial thing. So tell me about how that epiphany came to you and what opportunity did you discover in this process of going not only into a practice of working for people or working in a system, but also deciding to do the entrepreneurial thing as well. 
Well, you know, as far as the practice, I decided to go into that after obviously all of my training. And I think I was in the prison for about two years before I decided to go into private practice. And so I obviously enjoyed working with the young men, but I wanted to do more community work as well. I work from a theoretical orientation that's called cognitive behavioral therapy. So I do that work in the prison and I've always seen how impactful it is for the young men that I work with. And so I just started thinking about how can I offer that in the community? And obviously with my degree to do community work, you just go into private practice. So it really was a no brainer. I didn't really have to give that much thought at all. It was just a nice segue into that. But as far as what's more recently come up for me, as far as trying to get my information, my knowledge, my expertise out to the masses, basically. Last year, I did decide to just really give social media a chance. And so for the past year and a half, I have been on Instagram, Twitter, and um, Facebook, and also obviously LinkedIn is one of the platforms that I'm active on. But I really enjoy it because You know, I can't go out and speak to everybody. I can't share this knowledge with everybody. And I think the great thing about social media is that it gives you this opportunity to really kind of hang your shingle virtually and share your knowledge with the world. And I just love that. I find that fascinating that you can just log into these platforms and share your content, share your knowledge, share your expertise. And so I'm really enjoying that. And as far as more of the entrepreneurial side of it, I'm seeing sort of the different ways that I can launch probably even a course. You know, I'm working right now on a manual called um, Stress Less, where it's about just teaching. I like that. Yeah, how to not let stress overtake them and negatively impact them in so many ways. We know that the research doesn't lie. It indicates that when we're dealing with chronic stress, that you're more likely to deal with physical ailments. You're more likely to deal with tension headaches, migraines, ulcers, the list goes on and on. And so I'm really on this mission to educate people about the importance of not letting stress overtake them to the point where their body literally breaks down. So there's definitely a psychological piece of stress, but there's also this biological sort of medical issue that can result as a result of just dealing with it on a regular basis. So really looking forward to rolling out a course, an ebook, and just providing people with just this information in different formats. So I'm figuring all that out right now. Well, as we talk about your niche and we got some of the background with how you discovered it, and how you developed it somewhat. You had mentors that came into your space, people that you saw doing currently at that time in times past, but you thought, oh, wait a minute, I never thought about that. And I understand that. But I believe that there are five important questions that we need to ask ourselves, which is when trying to find our niche, which are made up of, you know, what are our passions? What do we do that feels purposeful? What patterns have we been successful with? What are we proficient at? And then also what problems are we good at solving? And so when we talk about the passions and your passions, what were your strong interests going into it? And how does your past passions tie into your current success? Mm, Great question. So my passion currently is about teaching people how we are in control of our minds. 
in my work with my clients, I'm always teaching them first and foremost that it's not the situations that happen in our lives that trigger depression, anxiety, stress, and anger issues. It's our interpretations in these situations that come up in our lives. And so one of the things I'm really passionate about is really just educating people on that. Oftentimes, I just got a phone call from a woman who was referred to me by her OBGYN. She's dealing with a bout of depression, and it's definitely part of depression. And when she was on the phone with me, I could sense the anxiety. I could sense her sort of being nervous. She's never done therapy before, but she trusts physicians' advice. And so she you know, took the leap and decided to call me and make an appointment. And so during the conversation, which I've had these sort of conversations numerous times over the past couple of years, is I could sense that she felt like this wasn't going to work, this being therapy, it wasn't going to be helpful. And I started in some ways just giving her a snapshot of the work that I do with clients, just kind of briefly introducing her to cognitive behavioral therapy and just explaining how it works, just in sort of bite-sized pieces. And during the midst of this three to four minute introduction to cognitive behavioral therapy, I could sense the relief in her voice. And she actually verbalized that. She said, wow, I just thought this was something that I had to sort of deal with and just try to suck it up. I know that I've changed since having my child. I know I've been dealing with insomnia. I've been feeling down. I've been feeling depressed. I haven't been feeling my normal self, but I just felt like I had to deal with it. And I think the beauty of my work, what makes me so passionate is because therapy works. This orientation, this theoretical orientation, it's grounded in so much research. Is it a panacea for every single thing in life? No, but I've seen it really be impactful in my work in the prison and in my work with clients in my private practice. So going back to my passion, my passion is really about educating people on how the mind works, that we're in control of it. We got to get in the driver's seat of our lives sometimes when we're feeling down and depressed and anxious and stressed. We shouldn't just give into our emotions and let it take over us and say, I can deal with this indefinitely. There are things that we can do. And again, getting into the driver's seat of our lives really consists of just saying to ourselves, I'm in control of my mind. I can switch gears in my mind as far as how I interpret situations that come up. And then also there's a big component of my work with all clients too. Cognitive behavioral therapy is twofold. It's not just about looking at your negative thoughts and your beliefs, but it's also about looking at your behaviors. So educating people on the importance of exercising, eating well, socializing, completing different tasks that they probably have been suppressing in their lives. Like, oh, you know, the meaning to clean out that garage for 10, 15 years and the fact that I haven't done it, you know, every time I open up the garage, I feel down, I feel defeated because I haven't accomplished that. Putting that sometimes on our goal list and working towards accomplishing that task, I've seen over the years how impactful it is for clients, how it changes their mood. So going back to the main point, my passion is really about educating people, not just on the effectiveness of therapy, but more specifically about the theoretical orientation that I work from. Again, cognitive behavioral therapy, where I'm a huge advocate and I really believe in the effectiveness of it. What do you do that feels meaningful or purposeful? I think that really kind of takes me into the realm of the work that I do in the prison. 
Okay. Again, what I was saying earlier at the beginning of the interview, I really do feel like my purpose is to help people who are underserved, who are counted out, to reevaluate how they view themselves. It's easy sometimes when you're counted out by society for you to take on that judgment. It's easy sometimes for you to take on that negativity. And there's a term that I found myself dealing with in college, which is imposter syndrome. This is when you feel like you're a fraud, like you're a phony, like you don't belong. You know, regardless of the fact that you can academically, for me and my situation specifically, I knew academically I could handle the work in college. I graduated obviously from college. I mean, from high school, my SAT scores were strong enough for me to get into college. You know, so there were these there were these concrete markers and indicators that, oh, okay, I can go on to a higher level of education. But when I got into college, there was this nagging sort of internal voice at times that started off as this external voice, which was coming from some of the adults in my life at that time saying, you know what, maybe you just want to go get a job. You know, you're a teenage mom, maybe you don't want to go off to higher education. So it started off as an external voice, but then it turned into this internal voice where it was like, oh, really, do I belong here? Like I'm doing well in college, but I'm still a teenage mom. Should I continue to pursue this? And so I think what really gives me meaning is just working from that space of helping my young men, even people in my practice that come in to see me that do have that imposter syndrome, helping them to see that, wow, I was once in your shoes and giving them really good therapeutic tools to help overcome that negative mental chatter. And so we have these patterns that I believe are also important. And these have to do more so with patterns. I see them as the natural tendencies that we have, right? So the propensities that we have. And so we know that we're naturally good at, like, for example, somebody be naturally good at mathematics and somebody may be naturally good at athletics. What patterns can you recall that you find that when you do X, you have success with it? When I bring my full self to my work, and what I mean by that is that I'm not just drawing from my training. I'm not just drawing from the theoretical orientation that I've been trained in. When I bring my full self into my work with my clients or even my work with the young men in the prison, when I'm listening to my intuition, when I'm listening to my gut, but I'm also drawing from theory and research, I feel like I do my best work. Because there are moments, and we call it using your clinical judgment at times. There's sometimes these situations or cases where you can't really pull from research or you can't really say, okay, this is what's happening specifically here based on you know, my theoretical orientation. This isn't making sense diagnostically, but sometimes if you're just still, and just really listen to your internal voice. Sometimes it really can be very impactful. It can really guide you. So say for instance, I had a very powerful experience with a woman in my practice about five, six years ago, where in the middle of session, I felt like we were kind of getting off course. You know, she was all over the place. I was trying to like rein in what it is we were trying to 
fully understand. And in the midst of all that confusion that was coming up in the session, I felt like she was going off on tangents. I felt like she was trying to deviate from the question. I just was still in that moment. And something said to me, just mention her mom. And when I just listened to my intuition and gut, when I mentioned her mom, she just broke down. She's like, what we were able to unpack in that session was that she was intentionally trying to throw me off course, trying to talk about X, Y, and Z. And I would try to bring her back to the main point and she divert again. And there was just something about me just bringing up her mom that just broke her open in that moment. In that moment, when I reflect on it, again, I wasn't drawn from my theoretical orientation per se. It was just me saying, okay, what's coming up in your spirit right now? You know, what do you feel is the reason behind why she's trying to deviate from we're supposed to be focused on? So anyway, when I listen to my gut, my intuition, I feel like I really do my best work with my clients in those moments. So here's a different side of the same coin. And this is the natural tendencies, but this is our proclivities, the things that we do naturally, or not necessarily naturally, but the things that we do regularly, rather, that we have become good over time with. So the patterns were our natural tendencies, but our proficiencies. What experience from Tom's past, because you've done it regularly over and over, like Malcolm Gladwell in this book of Outliers talk about the 10,000 hours, right? And so... He says, if you do X over X amount of time, you will become an expert at it. That's what he professes. And so from a proficiency standpoint, what can you call upon that you can say that people actually come to me because I'm good at this thing? (laughs) I think it's just that I have this ability to listen very well. You know, and that's a good thing for a psychologist, obviously, right? You know, people are coming in and sometimes I feel very honored in my work oftentimes because I've had countless people say, I'm telling you this for the first time. I'm sharing something with you that I've never said out loud before. And so sometimes just creating that space where somebody's feeling heard for the first time in their life when it comes to certain situations, I think that's definitely something that helps me to do my work very well. I think I, in some ways, well, maybe you as my older brother probably wouldn't agree with this, but I feel like I've always been a good listener. Definitely as a professional, I've honed that skill, but I think that's something that's always come sort of naturally to me. I've always been very inquisitive. I would sit there and look at a situation We always were in church and I always was a kid looking around and observing people around me. I may not engage them in conversation, but I'm there and I'm in tune with them. I'm observing them very closely. And so I think that that's something that comes naturally to me and it works to my benefit, especially being a psychologist, because that's a big part of my work, helping people to feel heard and just really zoning in on what they have to say. It's like second nature to me to do that. Before we get to the last section, the last question in the niche finding portion of this is uh, what problems do people come to you to solve? Well, again, I specialize in treating depression, anxiety, distress. So people that come in to see me are dealing with one of those conditions. The great thing about 
me in many ways being established in my practice for so many years. I work closely with a couple of physicians who refer their patients to me. And so they know that this is what I specialize in. So if they have a patient that is presenting symptoms of depression, anxiety, anger, or stress issues, they, you know, send them to me, they refer them to me. So yeah, that's what I'm really known for. Excellent. And so this last section that we have here now is the secrets. Now we do like a bit of a lightning round here. And so what these secrets basically that we're looking for, the very first question that I will ask you is what one secret would you tell your pre-niche self? So this is prior to discovery, prior to the epiphany, prior to meeting that mentor or guide along the way that inspired you to go into the field that you're in. So this is at the very beginning. You're a novice, you're hungry, you got determination, but you don't have direction, not yet. What one secret would you tell your pre-niche self that will help accelerate from where you find yourself at that point in time to get you where you are today? I definitely would say to my pre-niche self, don't doubt yourself. I think, you know, going back into the imposter syndrome made sense why in some ways that came up for me. And that chapter of my life, doubting my ability to not only graduate from high school, but to go on to higher education based on all the feedback I was getting from some of the adults in my life at that time. And so I can clearly remember wasting a lot of mental energy on sometimes doubting myself. And I think sometimes when we remove doubt from situations, it can help us to just really unfold. It can really help to accelerate what we're doing. I think doubt is a very, it just feels dense. It's that dense sort of energy that weighs you down. And so I think when you remove doubt and stop with that negative mental chatter of like, oh, well, I don't know if I can do it. I can't do it. I think that it just makes the journey that you're on a little bit easier. So I would say to myself, looking back, just don't doubt yourself. You experience a difficulty, you experience a challenge that's going to probably bring some roadblocks, but don't let that stop you in many ways from just pursuing a higher education and being confident in your ability to excel at it and do it well. What secret is a must-have to getting started and staying committed? Know your why. Know why you're pursuing what you've decided to pursue. I think that definitely is something that helps me on some of my most challenging days. You know, I work full time in a prison, depending on what's happening there. It could be mentally, spiritually exhausting. And I find myself on many days when I'm about to do my second shift at my practice, just reminding myself like, wow, this is really what I enjoy doing. I can think about specific clients that I'm going to see on a day that I'm exhausted and I'll just perk up because this is what I'm meant to do. And so I think that's sort of my guiding force whenever I feel sort of depleted or feel like I don't have the energy to do the work. Just, you know, tapping into the why and reminding myself that, no, you're here, you have a purpose and you're meant to do this sometimes gives me a second wind, essentially. Excellent. And so now that you discover your niche, how challenging is it to do what you do? <laughs> it can be energy zapping at times. I think when I reflect on some of my most difficult cases, 
it's challenging in the sense that sometimes you walk away from a session just feeling so depleted. There's some careers where you're just like, oh, I worked a lot of hours, but you can kind of sleep it off. In my work, it's like sometimes the energy gets latched onto you and it's hard to shake it. So say for instance, in some of my most difficult cases, like if somebody says, and this happened numerous times, unfortunately, where they say they want to you know, end their lives. That's really something hard to just sleep off. And so it's challenging in that sense that in more recent years, I definitely have found sort of this way of rebounding from those situations a little easier than I did initially as an early career psychologist. So now I have sort of the self-care routine that helps me to sort of rebound from those situations. But yeah, the work is challenging in the sense that you literally sometimes have people's lives in your hands. So last question that I have for you, how do you know when you should stay the course versus need to focus on some other goal? How do you know when to stay the course versus just giving up on, you know, this isn't meant to be? I think when you find yourself really just totally overwhelmed and you don't see any solution, you try to really make a conscious effort to tap into solutions, you try to problem solve and you're just not making any progress. I think it's okay for you to say, you know what, I need to do a hard reset. We do it with our computers. If our if electronic devices aren't working, right. it's like, okay, rather than just get frustrated with it, you know, you do a reset. You just power it off and then power it back on. And so I think that just being in tune with how you emotionally feel, like, wow, I'm exhausted, but I, I feel like I need to continue with this. Okay, it's okay to try to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, you know, go back to the drawing board. But if you're doing that, Endlessly, I think it's an indication that, again, you might want to power down. And when you reboot, maybe there will be a different answer or maybe you'll realize, okay, now I need to go down a different path. I think that's really important to do sometimes. Another thing I want to say about that is I think the powering down, what comes to mind is that it sometimes allows sort of spirit to take over. Mm. Right. And what I mean by that, I was reading a spiritual book the other day. It says whenever you feel really anxious and feel on edge, just know that that's the ego trying to take over. And when the ego is trying to take over, it stands for edging God out. Mm. And so I think sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, we're like I got to force this. I got to make it happen. And I think that in some ways the universe and God is saying, well, all right, if you feel like you're in the driver's seat, and you got to take this on on your own, I'll just stand over here till you realize that I'm over here and I can really charge your course. I can really guide you. So yeah, when you feel so totally overwhelmed, I think it's just an indication for you to go within and um, ask for help or don't go back to the drawing board and really figure out, you know, what direction you really should head in. Love it. So so much more that can be said, but I want to just whet the appetite for the listeners today. How would they get in contact with you if they were seeking some sort of help, guidance, or they would like to tap into you as a service? What handles are you using? How can they reach you on social media? Absolutely. So my website is www.germanninggibbs.com. 
drmanning.com. So that is D-R-M-A-N-N-I-N-G-G-I-B-B-S.com. And I'm at Dr. Manning Gibbs on all social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dr. Manning Gibbs. Excellent. It was such a pleasure having you on today. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, the insight that you have provided, not just the listeners, but also to me. I love the nuggets of truth that you were able to drop. And it goes right along with our mission that we have for Dream Octane, which we believe that if innovative change is an engine, that our dreams and abilities could be the fuel. And so we thank you, Dr. Manning Gibbs, for providing your insight and your time and making time for the people out there who could be in need of the guidance that you have so eloquently shared with us today. Thank you so much. And I want to thank our audience for tuning in to this episode of the Niche Finder Framework. And we look forward to having you participate and join us on the very next episode. If you haven't already, visit us on uh, dreamoctane.org. This is where you can find more helpful information and also other web podcasts that we may have right there at your disposal and for you to use for future insight. Thank you so much again for tuning in. And again, we look forward to having you part of our conversation on the next episode.